Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you will be listening to PSY 203 General Psychology with Professor Mark Hunter. I hope you listen and enjoy. In Module 19, we're going to look at basic learning concepts and classical conditioning. And learning is really defined as a process of acquiring through experience new and relatively enduring information and behaviors. And the enduring part is important because it's not that you saw something once, but were you able to keep that information. Associative learning is when you learn to that certain events occur together and uh, they may be two stimuli. We'll talk more about that in a second about classical conditioning or a response and the consequences. A stimulus is anything that we have that, is, that evokes a response. It could be a sound, it could be um, a, a you know, visual stimulus, it could be uh, anything that causes a response. Now, conditioning is what we refer to is the process of associating two things together. And the two main areas is operant conditioning and classical conditioning. And the big difference between that is because I know it can sometimes be confusing is that in classical conditioning, we associate stimuli that we do not control and we automatically respond to. Um, and operant conditioning, we associate a response, our behaviors with its consequences. Um, and this will make a little bit more sense. Now, um, that's one school. Another area is that um, we can learn just by observing something. We don't actually have to, you know, do it. You can watch somebody do something and learn it how how to do it yourself. Um, so, but not all skills are able to do that. But some skills are. The big name with classical conditioning is Ivan Pavlov. He was conducting experiments really about the, uh, the, how dogs perform uh, saliva and formation and their digestive systems. But he learned that the dogs would um, associate a sound of getting their food ready and start salivating earlier. And you, if you have a pet, you know, you may be the sound of unzipping the bag or, or scooping the dog food into a bowl. They get excited. They've associated that sound and learned that that's going to mean food, and they're going to get hungry, and they're going to start salivating it themselves. So we've, you've probably seen this in some form or fashion in, in your life as well. Um, now, Along the lines of this is the school of behaviorism. Behaviorism focuses just what is observable. It really doesn't have any interest in the mental processes. It's just what do people or animals or you know do, not what are they thinking at the time. So this is just a diagram of, of um, Pavlov's experiment, and they were measuring the sal saliva production. And so he started associating this, um, bringing the food out with ringing a bell. And the ringing the bell and in itself is, if it's not associated with the food, if you just rang a bell for a dog, they'd listen to it, but it, it doesn't have a 
a response. There's no physical change that occurs to the, the dog by just ringing a bell. That's called a neutral stimulus. An unconditioned response is um, when something happens naturally. You don't have to be taught. A dog doesn't have to be taught to um, salivate when food or meat or, or anything is provided for it. Um, an unconditioned stimulus would be the, um, the dog food. It would be something that naturally occurs. Unconditioned just means it wasn't taught. So the bell was the neutral stimulus, the unconditioned response is the salivation, and the unconditioned stimulus is the, um, is the uh, meat and the, or the dog food. And so after a while, when you start ringing the bell and presenting the dog food to the dog, the dog is starting to associate the bell with being fed. And then, so that becomes a conditioned response. So hearing the bell is, brings about the awareness that food is going to come soon. I'm going to start salivating. I'm going to, I'm going to be ready to eat. So those simple uh, associations are formed. And um, so this experiment, uh, Pavlov started doing adjustments to this. He started being able to, the frequency, uh, the bell, um, do you do it every time or do, can you change the bell to some other stimulants? And so this formed the foundation of, of um, the uh, idea of, of classical conditioning. The, um, the generalization is when we take how do, uh, we take a stimulus, how many different types of stimulus do we feel are similar? You know, like we have different ringtones on our phone, but you are probably aware that uh, when you hear someone a noise that it's probably a ringtone just by the generalization. But you're also able to tell which one's yours. You know, there's a bunch of phones ringing at the same time. You can discriminate which one is your ringtone. So those ideas of discrimination, generalization are part of the classical conditioning. Um, so this idea of classical conditioning has been applied to very many different areas of psychology and uh, it's been used with drug addiction as well and sometimes um, you can pair a, um, a particular taste with a drug that influences the immune response. Um, sometimes you can, uh, we call this aversion therapy and I think we'll talk more about that. Probably the more uh, well-known is operant conditioning and this was anytime that a type of learning where the, the behavior is strengthened if followed by a reinforcer or diminished if followed by a punisher. So the behavior that operates on the environment to produce a rewarding or punishing stimuli. Um, Skinner's uh, is the foremost psychologist in this. He did many types of experiments where the, um, um, for example, with the cat learns over time to press this lever and that'll open up the box and then the cat can get the food. And so um, at first the cat has no association between the lever and getting out of the box. And occasionally it just learns over time that if I hit this lever, I can escape this box. 
that's operant conditioning. And so he was able to do this with many different animals, um, with rats, with um, pigeons, but he's shaping the behavior, getting, um, performing a stimulus, for example, a light or a sound through the speaker. And because of that, uh, if the, uh, the rat touches the bar, they'll either get a food pellet or water. They'll get some rewards. So the stimulus here is the light or the speaker. And the, um, and the response they want is pushing the bar. And the reward is the food or the water. And sometimes they'll change things around like, will they do it? Uh, can they tell the difference between the speaker and the light? And, and there's lots of different schedules that they go on. So anything that reinforces the, the, this behavior is a reinforcer. For example, for a rat, they were kept kind of hungry, so they would be real motivated for the food. So if that rat was full and not, you know, not hungry at all, getting, they'd be less likely to do the behavior because the food isn't of interest to them at that time. So throughout our lives, our, our behavior is shaped, our, our, um, and we get this closer and closer to what we desire. If you're a parent, you, you, know, you want to shape the child to do certain things, to not do certain things, and you reward them <clears throat> for the things that they do, and you punish them for the things that they don't. So uh, when we say positive reinforcement, what we're saying here is positive means you're giving something. Negative means you're taking something away. Reinforcement means that you're uh, having that behavior to uh, continue, doing the behavior that you want. So positive reinforces increases the behavior. Negative reinforcement increases behavior too, but it removes a negative stimuli. So if you want your child to, uh, to do the dishes or do something, you know, um, if you do the dishes tonight, you don't have to take out the trash or have to mow the grass or something along those lines. So you're wanting them to do a behavior, but you're taking away a negative um, uh, stimuli. And this chart briefly explains the differences between the two. Uh, sometimes things that are primary reinforcers are things that we have to have, like food or water or things. And other things become condition reinforcers. So if you gave a dollar bill to a baby, it's just a piece of paper. But as the child gets older, that piece of paper has different meaning. He's or she's become conditioned to the value of that dollar bill. Um, sometimes reinforcers are immediate. Sometimes they're delayed. You know, when we go to work, we don't, unless you have that kind of job, you usually don't get paid right after you do something. It's in every week or two weeks or uh, once a month. Um, and do you give it a fixed time or a fixed after a number of certain incidents or do you, um, do you vary it? And all these are different ways that scientists use to manipulate ways to control behavior. A punishment is uh, administers an undesirable consequence or would take something away that um, something that is desirable to attempt to decrease the frequency of the behavior. You want to stop something so you give a punishment. Now you can either do that by giving something 
that stops. So it's something undesired, like you're um, you're going to have to do extra chores or something because you you didn't do you didn't make your clean up your room, so you're going to have to do extra chores because of that. Or you could take away something, and the kid didn't clean up the room, so we're taking away their phone or their um, video games or some sort of privilege. And certain uh, punishments work better with certain kids and you know adults as well. And again, you can change the frequency of how uh, you do this. So this is used a lot in different situations, like at school. Um, a lot of times, uh, especially with children who have uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder, um, this is used to kind of shape their behavior, giving them rewards. If you do this task, we'll let you spend some time on the iPad or we'll give you some badges or things like that, tokens. Um, sports uses this. We use it at work. Uh, we use it at home, you know, and a lot of our parenting. Um, so the ability to learn, we do have some biological constraints. Sometimes, um, you know, not every animal or can, can learn everything. There's limits, and just uh, within the same within human beings as well, we do have some biological constraints, and that allow us to learn things, but also prevents us from learning things. And a lot of that is in our predisposition. Um, so the uh, we can, if you're training an animal to do something, you know, do some sort of trick or something like that. If you stop doing it, eventually it'll go back. It'll have this instinctive drift back to forgetting that um, that learned skill. And um, so, our learning and takes place through cognitive learning. And when animals learn, they learn about the predictability. They they're able that they know that if we open up that can of dog food, that food's going to come. Um, so with animals, they, they base their learning off of predictability. Um, humans were more uh, sophisticated than that. We are able to understand that not always happens, but we can delay gratification. And um, so the, um, the ability to understand that not every time it happens. Um, what motivates us to learn? Early on is um, an extrinsic motivator could be the food. It could be something that uh, reward. It could be you know you get a good grade. You could get a, um, a scholarship or something like that. An intrinsic motivator is something that you're not getting a reward for externally. It's just the pleasure of knowing that you accomplished that. You were able to do that thing. Um, and again, we sometimes learn through just observing. We watch others do something, and we can pick it up. Sometimes younger children are able to pick up a skill earlier than their older brother or sister because they've seen their older brother or sister do that, and they've seen it modeled before them. They've, they've seen, had an example of that given to them. An interesting thing that takes place in our brain is when uh, we watch someone do something, that area of our brain the neurons in that area actually are activated as if we were doing it ourselves. So if we were watching someone trying to um, uh, play guitar or something like that, 
the areas of the brain that someone is learning, who's actually playing guitar, that same area can be activated in our brain by watching that as well, and that helps with the learning process. And this kind of gives a demonstration of, of, uh, of that as well with pain and empathy. Um, but we also can learn things that are pro-social. It's not just uh, learning math skills or athletic events or things like that, but we can see how are we supposed to act? And by providing models about positive behaviors will have a huge effect and can give, uh, learn that people actually do helping behaviors by children watching others do helping behaviors, but it also has antisocial effects. If we watch negative behavior, that can lead to us or others doing negative behavior as well, and that's a part of the observational learning. So that concludes for this uh, lecture, and we'll see you in the next lecture.